Birch Bayh passes away at 91. Congress rejects Trump's emergency. That plus Pete Buttigieg's town hall and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 15th, 2019. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller, built on a 100-plus-year foundation of legal service. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world, working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, former U.S. Senator and Indiana icon Birch Bayh, known for ushering Title IX into law, died at the age of 91. Bayh was a titan of the U.S. Senate, serving three terms from 1963 to 1981. Among his accomplishments was his authorship of Title IX of the Higher Education Act, a law guaranteeing women access to educational and athletic programs in higher ed. Bayh's legacy includes his work helping craft the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1965 Voting Rights Act. He's also the only person since the Founding Fathers to author two amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the 25th Amendment, laying out presidential succession, and the 26th, which lowered the voting age to 18. His work to lower the voting age dated back to his time in the Indiana legislature, where at 30, he was the youngest Speaker of the House in the state's history. Bai is survived by his second wife and two sons, one of whom, Evan, helped further cement the Bai name in Indiana politics, serving as governor and in his father's U.S. Senate seat. What is Birch Bai's legacy in Indiana? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, Leslie Weidenbenner, managing editor of the Indianapolis Business Journal, and Lindsay Erdody. State House reporter for the Indianapolis Business Journal. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Elise Schrock, how will Birch Bayh be remembered? Well, his legacy is vast, and I think the most profound um, example of that is something that you had uh, tweeted about, which was uh, freshman Representative Tanya Pfaff, who gave an impassioned floor speech about uh, Title IX and the fact that she would not have been afforded the ability to go to West Point on a basketball scholarship had he not uh, brought that uh, to uh, fruition for uh, the nation. And, you know, it's particularly impactful for her because she now sits in the seat that he uh, once served in. And, and that just goes to show you, you know, the, the guidepost for uh, democratic beliefs is that when we open doors for underrepresented communities, it's not about anyone else getting less. It's that we all move forward a little bit stronger together. So it not only afforded her the ability to um, be empowered through a scholarship at West Point, it set her on her career to one day you know, represent her district in Terre Haute as well. And especially touching, too, that she was the one who gave the sort of eulogy of, of sorts sure. on the floor because her father, Fred Nation, was a press secretary for both Birch and Evan Bayh. So there was another uh, even further connection. connection yeah. um, I think a lot of even the national coverage uh, of, of Birch's passing focused on Title IX first and foremost. And obviously there's a lot of reasons why Elise just talked about that. But there's so much more oh, yeah. you can go to after that. Well, Title IX only existed because he didn't pass his third constitutional amendment. You know, I mean, he has a better resume than most presidents. Mm -hmm. um, and if you just size up the legislative accomplishments and just the, I mean, there's, there's so few of these guys. And, you know, there's a lot of U.S. senators and a lot of members of Congress. There are very few people that almost single-handedly lead and just bend the arc of history. 
Um, Dick Luger's another one. We've got some of these people from Indiana, which is unbelievable. Um, Dick Luger's another one. John McCain, George Herbert Walker Bush. I mean, obviously, look, those uh, the last two we lost this year, but um, you're just losing icons. You're losing. You're literally losing modern day founding fathers. I mean, these guys are on par with. You know some of the greatest. Um, yeah, I mean, the Burke's public the only service. person and how the only unlikely person it was. since the founding fathers to author two constitutional. What's remarkable, and I, f- I had forgotten a lot until I went back and read this read this week. But the path was so unlikely. The guy's from Shirkyville, Indiana. He went. He's a state representative. He runs for the U.S. Senate, which is kind of a modern day story. Like these these people who kind of come out of obscurity and run and win, win the U.S. Senate out of nowhere, wins by less than two votes per precinct in Indiana. And, and serves three terms, and then is beat by another kind of up and comer in the same fashion in, in Dan Quayle. You know, yeah, it's just it's an right. unbelievable kind of part of Indiana history. In, in talking to some, close. in talking to some national folks yesterday, as we were doing stories about uh, Birch by, I, I got a lot of surprise that he was a Democrat and not a conservative one at that. Absolutely, he wouldn't win in Indiana today. Even if people knew all of the things that he was going to do, I think he'd have a hard time winning in Indiana today. He'd probably not win for that reason. I think, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we, were, you know, I, we were talking before we went on the air about the fact that he was a progressive. He was a progressive then. He would be a progressive now on yeah. a lot of the things he believed in. And so, you know, your question was, uh, what, what is does his, his what is his legacy in Indiana? What's interesting about about Birch Bay is his legacy is really all about outside of Indiana. He was, of course, very important in the state uh, and very important, uh, but he won't be the most famous by in many ways in Indiana. But on a national level, he has changed millions of people's lives. I, I think I agree completely with Leslie with I don't think Birch Bay would win an election in Indiana today, but... Nor folks, would any Democrat. <laughs> but Are you sure? Folks, folks at the State House, even Republicans at the State House, were yeah. quick to say, you know, when you think of Birch Bay, they kind of put the partisanship aside, right? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear um, how Speaker Brian Bosma talk about this and say, I don't think of him as a Democrat. I know he was a Democrat, but that's not how I think of him. I just think of him as this great Hoosier who represented the state really well. Yeah. All right, well, Congress rejected President Trump's emergency declaration at the U.S.-Mexico border as the Senate voted this week on a House-approved resolution. President Trump declared the emergency as a way to redirect $6 billion to fund a physical barrier along the southern border. That came after Congress failed to approve all of that funding in the budget deal it reached with the president. The resolution passed last month by the Democratic-controlled House terminates the emergency declaration. Thirteen House Republicans, none from Indiana, joined Democrats in support of the resolution. Twelve GOP lawmakers joined Democrats in the Senate, though neither Indiana Senator Todd Young nor Mike Braun voted for the measure. Braun came out in support of Trump's declaration immediately. He said the previous funding legislation didn't, quote, sufficiently address the humanitarian and security crisis at the border. Young waited weeks to announce his decision. He said he was examining the legal justification for Trump's declaration. Ultimately, Indiana senior senators said Trump's decision, quote, adheres to decades-old statutes and procedures. And Young says there's no question a national crisis exists. Michael Bryan, does this set a dangerous precedent, as some Republican senators have argued in this debate? I think it does. I think any time you change how the process works, particularly the parts of the process that force two sides to come together and come to some agreement on a major piece of policy, like immigration policy, for example, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when you can't get a bill through the Senate so you eliminate filibustering. I think it's a problem when 
President Obama couldn't get his agenda through Congress, so he just empowered the executive branch to go make a lot of what had previously been legislative branch decisions. I, don't, I think over the long term, that's a real problem. You think this, I, I think many people, I think many people on a bipartisan basis agree there's a humanitarian crisis in Central America, that there's a crisis at our southern border. Um, I support a wall as a part of other immigration reforms. I think th that Congress ought to, ought to move that direction. But if you, just, if you just take kind of the process step here, the emergency declaration was the result of a failure of Congress to act, right? And so you can make the argument that, yeah, the president has looked at Congress and said, this is the solution that, I, that we want for this problem, including the wall and other changes. Um, but when you start changing the process and the parts of the process that force two sides together to come up with kind of a commonly supported reform for, with, to a commonly accepted crisis or problem, policy problem, I, I think long term you wind up losing more than winning on those. And two sides on, on a couple of different bases, two sides on the two branches of government, two sides on right. the two parties in, in, in government. Uh, should Democratic, if this goes through, now there's court cases that we'll see to that, but if this goes through, should Democratic presidents hesitate to use it for what they want to do? I don't think so. I think, like Mike said, this is a separation of powers issue, correct? I mean, we're talking about, um, like you said, changing the process. Um, and it was really disappointing to see both of the Republicans from the Hoosier delegation um, you know, side with the president on this. This has been a gut check for Republicans, and um, they did not vote with the majority um, of that chamber. And I think this is going to be a continual gut check for the party, and it'll be interesting to see um, the path forward for our two senators. One immediately came out in support of the president. Um, one took a little bit longer, but in the end just didn't do the right thing. From a more what-will-it-mean-down-the-line question, um, does the average voter really care about the process, or is it President Trump promised a wall, he's going to get his wall however he's going to get it? I think that's a good question, and I'm not really sure the average voter does think about this and does think about the process, which could be why we saw Senator Young decide to support the president in this, because we saw senators, Republican senators trying to say that we support the border wall. And I think to voters, they're not understanding the process here. They understand, are you for the wall or are you not for the wall? Senator Young has said, and as well as Senator Braun, that he is for the wall, and so he may have done this as a way of proving his position. Senator Young, in his statement, talked about uh, he supports the president in this emergency declaration, but he is open to looking at that in the future and changing how that process would work. Is he trying to have it both ways? Oh, absolutely, he's trying to have it both ways. Now, I mean, whether the question is whether you can blame him for trying to have it both ways. I think it's going to be really interesting what the courts decide in this case, because we've talked a lot about how you shouldn't circumvent the process. This, what he did, is part of the process. It is allowed, assuming a court finds that he did it right, but it's not as if he's doing something that doesn't exist. And, but it would I, just be an expansion of sure. something that's been and going that's what the courts that's what the courts have to figure out. Now, I do, I think what's interesting about when you ask whether voters care, I think this goes back to this same issue that we talk about all the time, which is that Republicans care when, it, when it's a Democrat, and the Democrats care when it's a Republican, and that's part of the problem because you can ask a lot of Republicans, and they will tell you about all the times Barack Obama. When oh, yeah. they believe went around Congress to do things through executive agencies and executive and actions. And if you're and a conservative, you shouldn't really support a president having a mechanism available that becomes commonly used 
that is essentially just, I can do what I want and I can go it alone. Well, this whole mm -hmm. presidency, we've seen fiscal conservatives rack up a trillion dollar deficit. We've seen uh, conservative constitutionalists vote uh, for this type of measure that affects the separation of powers. So, you know, Republicans are going to have to over and over again really answer to what they think their core beliefs are or are they just going to follow the president on this, this one? This is just another example of situational ethics. I mean, yeah. everybody thinks they know where they stand until they get in a difficult situation and in this one case, in a place of power, it's okay. And they have power to lose. Absolutely, yeah. but it's on both both well, sides too. Absolutely. I think the point was well made here that but it's very transactional for voters. They're like, do I want a wall? I don't really care about your process mumbo-jumbo yeah. right. in Washington, D.C. They, and whatever They care about the is. funding getting yeah. there. Right. Yeah. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, does President Trump's emergency declaration at the U.S.-Mexico border set a dangerous precedent? A yes or B, no. Last week's question, do rallies at the State House influence state lawmakers' decisions? 33% say yes, 31% say no, and 36% say that it depends on who's rallying. I like that one. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg made a splash this week with a CNN town hall that generated not just buzz, but a surge in tangible support for the Democratic presidential candidate. Buttigieg's cable news appearance is part of a series of programs CNN is doing with presidential hopefuls. It covered everything from policy issues to how he and his husband say their last name is pronounced. Buttigieg was also asked about fellow Hoosier Vice President Mike Pence. He said while he's long disagreed with Pence, he used to believe the former governor believed in America's institutions and wasn't personally corrupt. How could he allow himself to become the, the cheerleader of the porn star presidency? Is it that he... Is it that he stopped believing in scripture when he started believing in Donald Trump? I don't know. In the wake of the TV appearance, Buttigieg's campaign got a boost in fundraising. He's now just 10,000 donors short of the threshold needed to make it onto the Democratic Party's primary debate stage. Leslie Weidenbetter, we've talked a lot about on, uh, on the show about what it would take for Buttigieg to really make an impact in this race. Are we starting to see it? Well, starting would be the key word. Um, <laughs> no offense to Pete Buttigieg, but there's a there's a uh, he's got a road here. This is one of the first steps. He's got to get on the debate stage, and this is sort of the, the way to go about doing that. So, is he at a point yet where he's going to get garner a lot of votes? Absolutely not. Is he getting some attention and some really interesting attention and exactly the right kind of attention that you want? He is, and if he can get over these thresholds and get on the debate stage, then he's got the potential to, to maybe convince some people to vote for him. To say the field is crowded is an understatement. Um, yeah. But does, does Buttigieg's profile make him stand apart a little bit? Possibly, um, although we did see another mayor jump into the race, and so that takes away a little bit from Pete Buttigieg. But he is really young. He does have military experience. These are all things he's hitting on in that CNN town hall. Um, he is gay and he is married. Um, those things are appealing to some voters. Those things are helping him stick out. I think it will be interesting to see if he gets on the debate stage. And if he does, can he stand out on the debate stage? Yeah. How does, apart from that, how does he capitalize on this? Well, I think he did a great job at the town hall capitalizing on that. Town halls are difficult. 
uh, the presidential stage is difficult. And you know, Leslie's right. The first the first step is giving yourself a platform, right? And every time he's given the opportunity, he hits a home run. You know, after the town hall, which is typically something that's difficult to kind of flex on, he. Um, he, he hit it out of the park. He, and we, you know, he's within 10,000 um, donors of the 65,000 that he needs to get on the debate stage. He's going to get there. Um, he, is, he is very uh, successfully inching his way on the path that he needs to give himself a platform to then start converting uh, voters. We've talked before on the show about is this a run for president to really run for vice president or a cabinet post. But particularly the, the clip that was most shared from that town hall was definitely the one where he talked about Mike Pence. And are you, are, are, do you think voters are starting to see in their minds, oh, what would a vice presidential debate be like between the two of them? <laughs> I actually hadn't thought of that. That's a good, that's a good angle. Um, <laughs> so the response to the question, is he going to stand out? He's going to stand out. I mean, what, what do you think of people who judge as a Hoosier? I mean, you look at him in the, con in the national context, and certainly in the context of the Democratic Party nationally right now, and he looks like the only sane person standing there. So, yes, he is going to stand out compared to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, these other people that are um, far left. I mean, he's going to have a hard time fitting in, I think. Um, or convincing Democratic, uh, Democratic primary voters that he even belongs in the Democratic Party at this point. He's, he's bringing up some interesting points that I hadn't heard other candidates talk about yet. I mean, in that CNN town hall, one of the things he suggested was increasing the size of the United States Supreme Court and not necessarily having them all appointed by the president. So, you know, if he's bringing up things like that, that might help him stick out too. We've also seen a tinge of Birch Bayh's legacy when he talks about, and, and another, to your point, other presidential candidates have talked about this, but um, getting rid of the Electoral College. I thought that was interesting and definitely another tie-in of um, the... Hoosier common sense. Hoosier. Hoosier. Well, it'll be, it'll be interesting if he gets onto the debate stage because he's incredibly good at these situations where he's kind of commanding the situation. I mean, he was being interviewed. Where he's another in the lineup. He, Right. It'll be very interesting and to see how he plays off other people, especially if anybody attacks anything he said. Yeah. So it, it's a whole different situation. It could yeah. be really interesting. Well, new research from Indiana University's Public Policy Institute this week suggests hate crimes laws around the country aren't used as often as they could be. The study comes amid a contentious debate this legislative session over whether Indiana should enact a hate crime statute. Researchers analyzed more than 300 bias-motivated homicides around the country over nearly three decades, and hate crimes charges were filed in less than a third of those cases. The research also found that hate crimes charges are brought disproportionately based on the victim. For instance, anti-sexual orientation and gender identity prejudice accounted for nearly half of bias-motivated homicides but those crimes represent only about a third of cases in which charges were filed. Lindsay, we asked Speaker Bosman whether this research makes passing a hate crimes bill at all a harder sell, and what did he say? Uh, he said it doesn't, and his reasoning for why is kind of what we've heard from lawmakers all along in this debate, and that what Indiana lawmakers are considering has to do with the sentencing phase of the criminal process, and so it would give judges the ability to enhance a sentence if bias was occurred or the crime was motivated by bias versus a separate crime. And to Bosma's point, the study was not looking at laws that had to do with sentencing. He also, Speaker Bosma also, uh, he was asked about, again, the idea of putting the list back in um, 
uh, as, as advocates want to happen. And he so far has been very opposed to it. But yesterday said, we don't want to go through all of the, the hard process of passing a hate crimes bill that won't get us off that list that's mainly kept by the Anti-Defamation League. So then you have to ask yourself. Well, then you have to ask yourself a little bit. Does that mean there's no, there's not going to be a bill at all, or does that mean there's going to be a bill with a list? And I suspect that that's a lot of what they're talking about. So if the question is, we don't want to pass something if it if it doesn't get us off the list, then there are two directions that you can go in that way. And so I'd say that becomes the real question. Uh, You know, the all of the right people in term that you would normally think of as the right people to get a bill passed are behind the bill with a list, with the, with the list of victims. And so there are only a few people who are against it for philosophical reasons and others. And so it'll be really interesting to see sort of who wins out on this one. Are we starting to see, with, with those comments from Bosmar, am I reading too much into them, or are we starting to see the issue in one direction or another start to move a little bit? Well, no, I mean, we're the part of the legislative process. It's, it's, an, it's a narrowing process, right? And, it, and there's decision points that are deadline-driven, and we're starting to they're, they're in the they're within view, right, yeah. in the second half of the session. So, um, And we don't have what language right now uh, that has the list that would then qualify later for conference committee or be inserted later because nothing's passed yet. A list is not passed yet. Right. Um, so I think you're right to start look, looking at what, what are these leaders saying and right. how do you, trying to read I mean, the tea leaves. Yeah, and how do you read the tea leaves into it? I think on this, I think the opponents of the list are going to use this study as like another example. See, this doesn't work. This isn't. This is just symbolic. And I think part of this is symbolic. Part of it is symbolic. It's, and they've said you know, that it's all not all about assaulting somebody. Sometimes it's about spray painting a swastika in a synagogue. And a lot of what racism is is symbolic. It's a symbolic act against an entire group of people. And I think it should be protected. And I'll tell you what's not symbolic is when the only LGBT member of a chamber stands up and says, from personal experience, we need this. When members of the Black Caucus get up to the mic and say, I, my experience is that we need this, and then the majority of Republicans in that chamber say that their interpretation of a law is greater than their human experience, it's an extreme failure of, of leadership. Well, legislation dealing with a publicly financed expansion of the Indiana Convention Center and two Hilton-branded hotels in downtown Indianapolis hit its first speed bump this week. The expansive bill would give the local Capital Improvement Board an additional $15 million each year via various tax funds. It also ensures the Indiana Pacers basketball team stays in Indy for the next quarter century. An addition to the bill in the Senate also means the potential creation of a soccer stadium in the state's capital city. But in the House Ways and Means Committee this week, owners of existing downtown hotels voiced strident concerns about the measure. They argue the expanded convention center capacity won't bring in enough people to offset the expanded hotel occupancy created by the development, meaning the existing hotels think they're going to take a hit. Michael Bryan, the Bill's Senate sponsor, Ryan Misher, is not from Indianapolis, and he argues that what's good for the CIB and Indy is good for the state. So why should Hoosiers outside of central Indiana care about this issue? Because Indianapolis has become a leader nationally in this type of business. It drives the central Indiana economy. It's responsible for a billion, over a billion dollars in spending. Uh, we know that uh, the, tax, the taxes, uh, 34% of state taxes are, are produced in central Indiana or the donut counties. 
and we know that they're only a recipient about 28 um, percent. You know, and the mechanisms that have funded all this have been duplicated in other parts of the state, in Fort Wayne and Evansville and other parts that, that now have great public assets. And, and Michelle pointed out, even if you don't even come to Indianapolis, it still matters to you. Yeah, I mean, we're a donor county. Our taxes help um, areas outside. And, you know, when it comes down to it, the, uh, the success of the city is the is the goal of every single person that's at the table um, for this bill. Everyone's success is measured in how well downtown's uh, hospitality industry does. I didn't think that it would be the CIB hotels portion of this bill that was going to be the first thing that threw a wrench in the process. I thought it was going to be the soccer stadium. You I mean, and me both. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's been interesting to see that soccer has kind of slid its way into the bill, kind of almost quietly. No one has really come out opposed to having it in, in with the bill. Um, you know, Indy 11 representatives were at the meeting this week, gave their presentation, and again, not a whole lot of pushback from it. I think what was interesting that we saw them talk about is how the soccer stadium would matter even if they didn't join the MLS. Which was a condition put in the, in the Senate. Right. As of right now, they would have to join and have an agreement with the CIB within three years. Yeah. And they're trying to make the pitch for either way we need this. Given how much Indiana, Indianapolis officials say we absolutely have to have this, are we going to get something? I think absolutely that it will pass. It almost always does in these situations. I mean, it comes down to the end, and there's some deal made, and they will get, they will get something for the CIB. I, I do think it's really interesting, though, that they're going to probably have to make these decisions before we actually know anything about what the Pacers want at the Fieldhouse that's and true. what the deal is going to be. All right. Well, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien. Leslie Weidenbenner of the Indianapolis Business Journal, and Lindsay Erdody, also of the IBJ. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash IWIR, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller, built on a 100-plus year foundation of legal service. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world, working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.